every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. Welcome to Friday and welcome to Money Talk. This is Peter Lewis with a roundup of the business and finance news from around China and across Asia. Please get in touch with any questions or comments by going to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter Lewis Money Talk is also the page on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm at Money Talk R3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the People's Bank of China cut the amount of cash lenders must hold in reserve for the second time this year, a move that will help banks support government spending to stimulate the slowing economy. The PBOC lowered the reserve requirements ratio for most banks by 25 basis points. The weighted average RRR for banks will be 7.4% after the reduction, which takes place from today. And the reduction could free up to 450 to 500 billion yuan, that's about 55 billion US dollars, to 69 billion dollars, according to analysts. The European Central Bank has raised Eurozone interest rates to a record high. The ECB raised its deposit rate for the 10th time in a row, increasing it by 25 basis points to 4%, as it warned inflation was expected to remain too high for too long. But the central bank signalled that Thursday's hike could be the last for now. The ECB said the governing council considers that the key ECB interest rates have reached levels that, if maintained for a sufficiently long duration, will make a substantial contribution to the timely return of inflation to the target. US oil prices topped $90 a barrel for the first time this year on expectations of tighter supply raising fresh concerns that they will drive the U.S. inflation rate higher. The price of West Texas Intermediates, the U.S. benchmark, climbed 1.9% to $90.16 a barrel on Thursday as the market reacted to Saudi Arabia and Russia's decision last week to extend production cuts to the end of the year. The price of Brent crude was up 2% at $93.70 a barrel. That's the highest level since November. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Nitin Dialdus, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. And with a view from Australia, it's Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. On Wall Street Thursday, US stocks shrugged off much stronger than expected retail sales data and producer price inflation, suggesting investors don't believe the economic data will force the Fed to raise interest rates when they meet next week. Traders also cheered the revival of Wall Street's IPO market. The Dow had its best day since August the 7th, climbing 332 points, or 1%, to 34,907. The index closed above its 50-day moving average for the first time since September the 1st. The S&P 500 gained 0.8% to 4,505. The Nasdaq Composite moved 0.8% higher to 13,926. Shares in UK chip designer Arm closed up almost 25% at the end of its first day of trading on the Nasdaq yesterday. Arm opened at $56.10 per share on Thursday afternoon and closed at $63.59 a share, significantly above the $51 offer price agreed on Wednesday evening. The closing price gave the chip designer a market capitalization of $65.2 billion and the IPO raised almost $5 billion for SoftBank, making it the largest US listing in almost two years. SoftBank still holds about 90% of Arm's stock following the IPO, and Arm's price-to-earnings multiple is over 110 based on the most recent fiscal year profit. 
Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index snapped a six-day losing streak. It closed 39 points higher, or 0.2%, at 18,048, close to a three-week low. The benchmark index has lost 4.2% over the past seven days. The tech index was 0.4% higher. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.1% to 3,127. And futures markets are projecting that uh, the Hang Seng is going to rise about 0.6% this morning at the open, starting the day at about 18,160. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's a Friday morning. We're waiting to see what extreme weather we have this morning in Hong Kong following the last two Fridays. But it's good whatever happens. We're here in the safe company of Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Good morning. And also with us, Nitin Dialdus, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Nitin. Good morning, Peter. The People's Bank of China cut the amount of cash lenders must hold in reserve for the second time this year, a move that will help banks support government spending to stimulate the slowing economy. Hopefully, the PBOC lowered the reserve requirement ratio for most banks by 25 basis points, according to a statement yesterday. But it excludes financial institutions that have already implemented a 5% deposit reserve ratio. The weighted average triple R for banks will be 7.4% after the reduction, which takes place from today. And the reduction could free up 450 to 500 billion yuan, according to analysts. Beijing has introduced a series of supportive measures to stimulate overall credit demand and stabilise the troubled property sector. But Francis, is it enough? Well, it's not quite enough, but it's a step in a good direction. I think uh, people people have been clamoring for measures to to stimulate the market, and then uh, the government only have all these pawns agenda, which actually meant nothing at all. <laughs> but uh, uh, for the second time, they 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 lower the reserve requirement. They free up about one trillion yuan in credit so that the uh, banks can lend to the uh, uh, co- uh, companies or consumers. But, but still, uh, the biggest problem in China right now is really how, how do you deal with the slowing property market and the bad debt created by the uh, uh, mainland developers. And uh, I think uh, many of them will not survive. Mm. They cannot, like Evergrande, they are indebted far too much. There is no way they can recover. The, the PBOC did this back in March, didn't they? They, ra- yeah. uh, they cut the reserve requirement ratio by 25 basis points then, but it didn't do an awful lot really, did it? No, but, but it has to be coupled with measures to save the uh, property market. I think mm. uh, uh, the property market is the key to really economic revival. If you cannot revive the property market, uh, all the other measures uh, really don't mean too much. Nitin, I'm wondering how this is going to help. I mean, I get it that, you know, it boosts banks' lending capacity um, and helps them go and buy bonds, especially some of these local government bonds. But the problem is there is a lot of credit available already, isn't there? We saw that from the credit data um, last week. The problem of the Chinese economy isn't um, a lack of credit. It's that people and companies just don't want to borrow. Exactly. Um, And 
you've got to laugh a little bit because you've got a credit crisis happening in China. So what do we do? Let's give out more money to in credit. It just doesn't actually make any sense, does it? It's pouring petrol onto the fire, really, it, isn't it? Exactly. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's not helping. And I think people do recognise there is a credit crisis. They don't want to overborrow. So it's not necessarily going to lead to consumers going out there and borrowing more. What they have to do is, I mean, I don't necessarily totally agree with Francis in the sense that you've got to get the property market going. I think you've got to get the whole economy going. Mm. Um, property is always going to be a function of population. You've got declining population. You've got people who need to move to these cities if you're going to build these properties. It doesn't necessarily always happen. So the property market itself, I think you can ignore. But you really have to focus on the economy and you have to start getting the economy going in one way or another, whether it is trying to get the manufacturing side going and get exports increased or whether it's focusing on the low, you know, domestic economy, whether it's attracting tourism, whatever it be. But you have to start with that. You've also got to start getting people back into jobs. Um, when you've got 21, <laughs> over 21% unemployment at the youth level, they've got to get jobs. And all of that then starts triggering confidence. And when you get a a consumer base that is confident they'll go out there and spend they'll go out there and do what's required to get the economy going or continuing to go uh, go forward Mm. but to me it's really focused on getting the economy going rather than just you know adding as you said adding petrol to the fire in a credit market that is already dying Francis, the PBOC is going to meet today. Um, mm-hmm. Is it going to change the medium-term lending facility, or is, is this triple R cut really <laughs> means that there isn't going to be any interest rate cuts now for a while? Well, they like to do things piecemeal. I mm. think uh, they will reserve that interest rate cut maybe next time they meet. So don't expect uh, everything all at once. They will be asking too much of the central bank. I think uh, mm. they want to do it step by step, uh, baby step by baby step, because uh, that's, that's their style. Mm. Anyway. But it needs, I mean, the PBOC is doing its best, isn't it? It's doing its part, but it really needs some supportive fiscal policy to go with it. And that's what seems to be lacking from Beijing. Well, uh, I I don't know how you can increase government spending because the local governments already indebted to the amount of like one million. Uh, no, no, I, I let me see. That the number is so so big, something like uh, ten trillion yuan, mm. or I I don't remember. It's hundred trillion or ten trillion yuan. It's almost they're both s- large numbers. Yeah, what it, it is. It's almost the size of the. I the think it's ten trillion GDP. Yeah. So you cannot lend them more money because they already borrow too much mm. i think uh, what what they really need is really fiscal discipline which is really sorely lacking in the past few years do you think that in the uh, the, the government's going to meet its five percent growth target or is that all out the window now um in real numbers it's it's out the window but what they publish <laughs> we'll, we'll see <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um uh, no, I mean, I think let's be realistic about this. All the numbers point to it not being met. All the numbers are negative. All the numbers are showing that you've got an economy that is struggling. So for them to come out and say that they're going to get a 5% growth, I think is very, very unrealistic. Mm. Yeah, don't forget, under Zhu Yongji, uh, Chinese economy grew 7% a year from 94 to 2000. 
even though the, uh, the, the actually the economy actually shrank the, during the seven years of of austerity, mm. so so you can never buy the figures. <laughs> well, we're never going to see that sort of growth again, are we? You know, those <laughs> no. days, uh, those days are gone. Yeah, days published growth numbers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there's more going on on the interest rate front. The European Central Bank has raised eurozone interest rates to a record high. The ECB raised its deposit rate for the 10th time in a row, increasing it by 25 basis points to 4% from 3.75% as it warned inflation was expected to remain too high for too long. But the central bank signalled that Thursday's hike could be the last for now. The ECB said that the Governing Council considers that the key ECB interest rates have reached levels that if maintained for a sufficient long duration will make a substantial contribution to the timely return of inflation to the target. ECB President Christine Lagarde stressed the substantial impact of current interest rates on inflation in a media briefing in Frankfurt, but added that it's not to say, because we can't say that now, that we're at a peak. Nevertheless, Nitin, talking about a, a dovish hike, this was about as dovish as it could get, because they were almost <laughs> apologising for doing it. Yeah, totally, totally. That's right. The, uh, uh, the, the UK economy is in recession right now because they, because of uh, inflation and, and interest rate hike and people uh, cannot afford to uh, pay the mortgage <laughs> mm, <laughs> now. Mm. And, uh, and things are not really that much better in the France or Germany. Well, Germany is in recession, isn't it? Yeah. Slipping into recession. What, what do you think of this, Nitin? Uh, I mean, it's much more interesting trying to work out what the ECB is going to do than the Fed, because we all know what the Fed's going to do. But this was a much closer decision, wasn't it? Well, I think it was closer. And, but I think, you know, Christine Lagarde did say that it was just going to be a case of we will hold it for now. And I think they will hold it. What you don't want is you raise rates and then you lower it and then you raise it and there's so much uncertainty. So I think what they will do is they'll probably just keep it on hold for a while, see how it all filters through, see what happens with inflation. You do have you do have some inflation concerns still, especially with the petrol and the oil prices. I mean, you, we talked about it on your headlines where it's now over $90 a barrel. Mm. That can seep in and that could cause some inflation, which means it's not going to be easy for them to lower it in the future. But at the same time, I, I think you're not going to see them raise it because... If they do, then you're going to see a lot more issues that's going to come through from the population point of view. And therefore, you know, I think this is it, at least for the next six months. Really? Yeah. So, but they're, going to, they're not going to cut them either, are they? They're not they? going to cut them. <laughs> they're not going to cut them. They're just going to keep them steady. I mean, yeah. I think what they'll do, I mean, we, we already know the Fed at the very least is going to keep rates steady for the next, let's say, nine months. Mm-hmm. I don't think the ECB is going to start dropping rates um, well ahead of the Fed. So... Let's give it six months at least before they mm. try and look to drop it. The problem, um, Francis, for the ECB yeah. is the growth forecast. It's cut its growth, own growth forecast from 0.9% to 0.7%. And then from next year, uh, it's cut its growth forecast from 1.5% to 1%. When you compare the yeah. US economy, which is motoring along at about 3% yeah. uh, this quarter, stark difference, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, 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 the, the EU economy is, is really stuck in the neutral. It's not moving at all. I think uh, the costs are too high and now the interest rates are too high too high, and they actually kill off yeah, economic growth. So I, th- I think the uh, job for, for the central bank now is how to stimulate economic growth. Hmm. But the problem is for, for Europe, there's the structural cost structure is really too high because very high uh, 
uh, uh, welfare costs, social costs, and now you have the uh, environmental costs. Uh, you 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 look at uh, uh, the Netherlands. They 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 want to be the first country to become neutral, but they instituted some policy that the airline said they cannot afford <laughs> to follow. Mm. <laughs> That's the big problem. How big a problem is uh, the oil price going to be in it? And it's uh, U.S. oil now above ninety dollars. Brent crude above ninety two. Plenty of analysts now forecasting it's going to reach a um, hundred. We've been quite lucky, haven't we? We've seen int- we've seen inflation come down pretty well around the world over the last six months or so. But is this now a big risk to inflation? It's a risk, and then when you combine it with the fact that the euro has dropped from what one twelve down to one oh six, you've got those added uh, risk. Uh, inflation pressures as well just on the currency movement on anything imported so there's a combination of factors there that will import inflation um, and will cause inflation um, so I think when you look at it on an overall basis um, there are there are actual issues there and it makes it very hard for them to lower rates but I agree with Francis I think the biggest problem with Europe is a lot of the social welfare, welfare costs and a lot of money going into all of that mm-hmm. because it is very much about looking after every citizen as opposed to just focusing on what is going to be good in terms of economic growth and leaving some behind. It's a good thing, um, don't get me wrong on one hand, but at the, you know, if you're looking at pure economic growth and just trying to get the economy motoring along, it becomes a hindrance. So um, it's that balancing act of how do you <laughs> look mm-hmm. after your population, whereas at the same time, how do you get economic growth? And it doesn't necessarily go hand in hand. So. Mm. Do you think, Francis, that um, that the Fed is going to run into problems soon because um, the inflation is starting to move back up again, isn't it? Consumer price inflation was <laughs> higher than expected in the data yeah. on Wednesday, and then last night we had producer prices rising the most in over a year. They were up 0.7% month on month. The market had expected a 0.4% um, rise, and that was partly driven by this surge in energy costs. Yeah, I think that's the problem. But the good news is that uh, one key company component of the consumer price index is rent. Mm. Uh, rents are actually coming down. Uh, I think last year, when, when the inflation reaches 10%, I think a key contributing factor is the surging rent. But now, rent increases have eased. And, and I think, they, I think and, uh, in due course, even the, uh, uh, I, uh, the OPEC predicted that the uh, demand for oil will peak in 2024 that is next year when the, when the, um, many consumers opted for electric cars mm. and demand for oil will fall i think uh, you can look forward to that uh, you look at china now 30% of the new cars are electric and if you look at some gen it's like 50% of the cars on the street are electric. That is a huge change. Mm. And uh, China exported 2 million cars, mostly electric, to the world in the first half of the year. I think, that, uh, I think in 2024, you will see a fundamental change in, 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 the, in the numbers of cars sold. And then I think electric cars will become the mainstream and that will cause a sharp fall in demand for oil and also also a fall in inflation. 
Well, on the subject of electric cars, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced Wednesday that Brussels is going to launch an anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicles that she said are distorting the EU market. In her annual address to EU lawmakers, Ms. von der Leyen said global markets are now flooded with cheaper Chinese electric cars and this probe could constitute one of the largest trade cases launched given the scale of the market and if found to be in breach of trade rules, Chinese manufacturers could be hit with punitive tariffs. Now, listen to what um, China has said about this. First of all, Wang Lutong, who's Beijing's top official for European affairs, wrote on Twitter uh, that uh, in what position is the EU Commission to launch anti-subsidy investigations when they do the same thing themselves and yeah, subsidise right. uh, their, their own cars? Um, it gets even worse. China's Commerce Ministry vowed to protect, protect the legitimate rights of its companies um, and it's described it as a naked protectionist act. State media has even got in, the, even got in on the act. China's Global Times said the economy, uh, the European economy is, is going to suffer if protectionist measures are used to suppress China's EV industry industry. And they said uh, that uh, the, the advantages are jo- enjoyed by Chinese EV makers aren't a result of government subsidies, but because of China's advantages in terms of value chain, talent, technology, infrastructure and logistics. So Nitin, help us work our way through this. Who is right uh, on this? Are they all as bad as each other? Or is it, as China says, you know, the reason why, um, you know, they're doing so well with exports of cars is because of their, uh, their talent and their technology and their logistics? Actually, it is, in reality, the latter. Um, it's the price against quality ratio. And if you put the prices of Chinese cars and what they deliver, it actually is quite substantially better than what you do get for a lot of the other cars. The problem is, they're all as bad as each other, as you said. I mean, they're all offering subsidies. They're all trying to beat each other. And if China's EV market takes off, who are the biggest losers? I mean, European are the, you know, Europeans are the largest manufacturers of global cars, aren't they? A lot of the U.S. car manufacturers don't really, I mean, I say don't really, I mean, there are a few names in the U.S. that do export well, but the majority of the biggest cars are Europeans. So they're the ones who lose that. So from their perspective, they don't want to lose that market share. They're going to do mm-hmm. whatever they can to protect it. Um, how much power they can have? I mean, China providing cars in Africa or India, emerging markets, does Europe really have much power in that? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. All they can really do is maybe stop some of the Chinese cars going into Europe um, but, you know, if you take it from a tax perspective, those European cars won't have taxes, ta- taxes put on because they're built over there. So there's no import taxes or anything like that. Chinese cars then don't necessarily measure up so well on the price perspective, but at the same time, they do measure up on the quality. So um, it's a choice. I mean, you look at... But then, you know, you also look at some of the car makers. Take a company like Polestar. That's a JV with, you know, with Volvo. It's just a Swedish company. So you're also... Uh, cutting your nose mm-hmm. uh, to spite your face in that situation because then if you say Polestar is Chinese you're cutting Volvo which is a European company um, so then how do you balance that out because don't forget a lot of these cars uh, are actually JVs with a lot of European brands too so there's that, it's going to be a very interesting balancing act to see how it all plays out um, but ultimately look Chinese cars are competitive they do offer decent quality for certainly for the price that they're being offered at and Europe has either just got to live with it or fight, fight back. Yeah, I don't think you, you, uh, you, you can compete with China on electric cars because the key to electric car is really uh, the uh, battery, lithium battery. And China makes 60% of the electric uh, car batteries in the world. 
uh, even when uh, Ford uh, uh, established two plants in Tennessee and Kentucky, they asked the largest uh, battery makers in China, uh, uh, Amperex, to be their partner to supply them mm -hmm. with the batteries. Globally, only Tesla can compete with the Chinese uh, uh, electric car makers because Tesla make their own batteries. Right. So, so is that what it's down to? Is that why? Because you wonder why if companies like Volkswagen and others <laughs> can't compete on quality. It's down purely to the batteries? Is well, that, I think it's a combination. Well, no, but it's a combination of factors. Why does Tesla compete? Is Tesla competes also because you get the drivability. You go from 0 to 100 potentially in three seconds if you get you know this super uh, souped-up Tesla. But even your average Tesla is not 105 seconds. It's 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 a drivability thing as well. You know, like if I'm not going to get a sports car, I want something that feels good. So Tesla can compete from that perspective. Then you look at the um, operating system that Tesla offers. You know, when it screens and all that, that's a good quality ad. Mm. What is the what do the European cars offer in comparison? They don't have that same kind of quality. So mm -hmm. I think if you're not going to compete on the battery length of it, at least compete on the functionality of the car. And I don't think European cars do that yet. BMW may be the exception mm. at the moment. And I do think the Mercedes, the EQ, um, they are too late into good. the market. Yeah, but, I think but, that's the problem. Yeah. Like the Japanese, they, 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 they held up the electric cars yeah. for too long. And now the market has gone from them. <laughs> well, I think Mercedes are fine. But I do see a lot of EQs out there, certainly in Hong Kong. And I do think globally, the Mercedes EQ ranges are actually quite good. And BMW has been competing right from the beginning. They had the mm -hmm. i3 right from the beginning. Um, so they've been competing right from the beginning too. But you can see who the leaders will be. <laughs> Your Volkswagens, I agree with Francis, they're way, way behind. So unless they offer something that's completely radical and really does offer a good uh, competitive advantage, they're going to struggle. Yeah, I'm amazed Tesla does so well in Hong Kong because I don't know anywhere in the city where you can go from naught to 100 in three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, Peter. Nowhere. When I'm on a traffic light and I need to get ahead of cars, I do. Except you, Nitin. You're the only one. Okay. And, and what about what's going on with Apple and iPhones? I mean, this seems to be oh. another area of disputes, oh. doesn't it? it? It's not at all clear whether or not the iPhone is actually banned or not um, in, in well, government the, institutions. The official says they are not banned, but then the news channel all said they are being banned. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who's right. <laughs> yeah, and they talked about in the press briefing, they, they said, you know, there's no laws or regulations that mm -hmm. stops people um, using iPhones in government buildings. But then they did go and say, we've noticed there's been many reports about security incidents yeah. uh, concerning Apple phones, which sort of then raises the issue about what is the status then of, of the iPhone in China? Well, they're not banned, but they're security issues, isn't there? Yeah. So please don't but, use them in our buildings. But, <laughs> but then they do have competition now because Huawei is uh, coming up with the Mate 60, which is, uh, they claim, is as good as iPhone 15. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. But, you know, look at that as well. And I think if you take the China phones, it's a sim it, they, their quality is actually quite good as well. But then it's a reverse. The Western world don't trust it because of security issues on the Chinese phones. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's a little bit of a reversal here where China is saying, okay, people keep saying we've got security issues with our phones. Why don't yeah. we just say it with the others? So they've got security issues too. Yeah. And you know what? Probably all the phones are spying on, every phone is spying on you. Mm -hmm. So it's which evil do you want to go with, right, ultimately? Let me, in the final few minutes that we have, ask you about the markets. 
Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index came close to declining for a seventh consecutive day, just yeah. managed to claw back into yeah, positive territory, like... up 0.2%, but it's still near a three-week low. It's lost over 4% now over the last seven days. What's going on, Francis? Yeah, I, I, I think the market is still overdue for a rebound. I think with the uh, uh, our, our rate cut by the central bank, I think uh, today we we should see a rebound. Mm. I think uh, the eighteen thousand is a floor that uh, the Hong Kong stocks uh, will not fall below right now. I think uh, I, I I think uh, also the, uh, 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 the the successful listing of arm also injected uh, 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 um, uh, uh, hope into the global stock markets because that was the biggest uh, IPO in the world for two years. Mm. And so people are getting, well, at least becoming more optimistic about the stock market now. Are you seeing that optimism, um, Nitin? We, we've seen we, when we look at the uh, the Bank of America uh, quarterly survey, we've seen a huge shift in um, assets out of um, China and into the US, which is, seems to be the main beneficiary um, of this. What, what's going to change that? Well, I think if you want to play the contrarian view, you can say, well, everyone's out of China, so there's no one left to sell. Um, which means it can only go one direction over the longer run. The problem that you have, obviously, is we all know the economy is suffering. I mean, if you just take the uh, Chinese market to start with, there's huge issues, which we talked about at the beginning of the show in China and that mm. they, what they've got to sort out. So how can you get too confident in the stock market from that basis? You take Hong Kong, we know property market prices are coming down. A large part of the Hong Kong makeup of the Hang Seng Index is developers and banks. And if they're not being able to lend or get mortgages out there or property companies, developers aren't actually uh, being able to sell any of their properties unless they do at a really discounted rate, um, what's going to stimulate that market? Um, so there's a whole number of factors. But like I said, you could look at the contrarian view and go, well, everyone's out of it already. So there's a limited downside. The question is, when do you get the upside then from here? Mm. Could it be from the economic data that's coming out this morning? We've got retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investments. Is that uh, have the potential to surprise? Uh, putting too much hope into those figures. Yeah. Uh, we are not that optimistic about those uh, figures. I think the, the economy is still in, in, in the slow lane. It will take a lot of uh, time and effort to really uh, boost the economy. Mm. You know, the reality is, um, if they do want to start getting some confidence back, they've got to lift all the restrictions that they put in over the last three years. But then again, you know, yet today I'm reading about restrictions in the healthcare sector. And so all of that just leads to less and less confidence coming in because you just don't know what the next sector that's going to be hit with a restriction is. Mm. And you can't get your economy going if everyone's fearful. So, I mean, until that happens, until they start lifting all the restrictions, People can be tutors again. People can, you know, practice freely in the healthcare sector. People can be DD drivers. People can do all of that. Unfortunately, it's a struggle. And I don't see, you're always going to have limited upside. Like I said, you might not necessarily see so much more downside because everyone's out, but you're always going to have a limited upside until you can really see all of that, all of that changes. 
and who knows when that's ever going to if that's ever going to happen and when it'll happen there is a strong correlation isn't there between the hang seng and the chinese yuan so this effort <laughs> by yeah. the pboc to really squeeze the yuan bears i mean they're driving up yuan highball uh in hong kong three-month highball now is at 4.4 and a quarter percent that's the highest since 2018 the overnight rate um is almost the same as us dollar rates now it's above um above five percent um it, is that going to have an impact, do you think? Is it going to help support the yuan in the longer term and help uh, support the stock market? Well, uh, well, if you raise interest rate, the stock market will fall. But the other side is uh, if you raise interest rate, the, the, the yuan exchange rate will not fall. Uh, against the U.S. dollar, that will benefit the, <laughs> the stock market. So, so uh, it's, 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 it's a tough call. Mm. We we don't know which one <laughs> we will come out on top. Yeah, I think I think if you look at it, when you um, raise rates, you're trying to attract money into your mm. into your currency, and if you've got putting money in your currency, what are you going to do with it? You can either leave it in a fixed deposit, or you can put it in something a little bit more speculative, right? So mm. that's that's the argument: is let's raise rates, get people going into one, or and therefore they're going to have to put it into something. Yeah. Mm. But uh, again, like I said. The reality is if you really want everything going, you've got to get rid of all those restrictions that have been put in there and really start getting the economy fully functional again. The thing is the, the PBOC is fighting a losing battle here, isn't it? Because as long as US interest rates remain um, as high as they are, and it looks like they will, and we've got this huge yield differential now between uh, the US 10-year Treasury and the, uh, and the Chinese 10-year um, government bond, it's at a record uh, high now that the yuan is going to carry on weakening, isn't it? Definitely, uh, unless of course uh, Powell de- Jerome Powell decided to uh, lower interest rate later this year. <laughs> not much sign of that happening. That's, uh, uh, not yet. <laughs> That's not going to happen till middle of next year, earliest. So, uh, yeah, no, I agree. I think Chinese yuan continues to weaken, or or you're just going to pump so much money to protect your currency that it just becomes a way, you know, good money going after bad. So. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts. Uh, that was well, Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Drive home safely, Nitin. Thank you. I will. <laughs> and also with us, Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, we had some uh, good jobless data out of Australia earlier this week. Australia's seasonally adjusted unemployment rate stood at 3.7%. That was unchanged from July's three-month high. number of unemployed people fell by uh, 2,600. And employment, though, surged by almost 65,000 to 14.11 million, much more than the market forecast. I'm just amazed, Toby, that after, what is it, 10 straight interest rate hikes from um, from the Australian Central Bank, the, the job market is still pretty robust, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually, the, the numbers aren't too bad, but they hide a couple of realities or emerging realities. Um, the majority of the jobs creation was part-time. So 64,000, I think it was 62,000 of the increase in employment numbers was part-time, not full-time. Mm. And the participation rate in the economy uh, for the labour force is at 67%, which is like record highs. So the market's there. You've then got, uh, so I think all available uh, capabilities being absorbed. The economy has yet to um, essentially start to soften enough to see those employment numbers turn. Having said that, you, you also have to look at productivity. I think the, 
you've got to switch between actual jobs and productivity to determine how the RBI are looking at their uh, at this tight labour market. So even if the labour market in terms of total numbers and unemployment rate stays at 3.7, it doesn't please uh, necessarily the um, RBA because of the level of productivity decline, which mm. is quite massive over the last uh, period. So it's a bit mixed to look at the labour force in isolation. It's a good number. It shows there's still tightness there, but there are some emerging concerns um, that you'd have to, to look through at. It is a very odd economy at the moment, isn't it? Just not not just in uh, Australia, but in several parts of the world where you have this rapid rise in interest rates, the fastest rise I think we can remember seeing. But yet at the same time, the economy is holding up. The jobs market um, is, is holding up. It, it seems like the normal sort of transmission mechanisms for interest rates aren't working as they used to. Well, I was I was looking at the lag effect um, and and reading about this and you know the the right now the market feels like it's goldilocks right we're going to end up with inflation coming off soft landing and if you look historically at where yield curve when you get an inverted yield curve you've got a period of between 18 to 22 months before the real impact comes through and recession hits historically um when you have this cycle and in that particular period there is a period that exists where it looks fairly comfortable where this transition towards a slower economy actually looks like it's humming on quite nicely um and so there's an expectation now that that's yet to feed through this lag effect of the interest rate rises is still yet to be felt um completely and that that'll start to hit particularly let's say the u.s economy as the benchmark um either at the end of this year or into the first quarter of next year and right now, what appears to be a very nice scenario where it looks like we'll get a soft landing, uh, growth will, will slow but not substantially, labour markets will stay fairly well uh, controlled and not dislocated, um, that's yet to play out according to some of the theorists that this lag effect is still got to, to be felt. Uh, and we'll see that probably towards the end of this year in the US economy, probably into the first quarter of next year. So maybe we're looking at things a little bit glass half full um, and they're looking as good as they'll get for the next six months. Mm. I'm wondering if uh, the, the central banks uh, are going to run out of luck, though, because if you look at the US inflation data that we've seen this week, uh, the consumer price index accelerated back to 3.7%. Uh, the producer price data was even stronger that we had um, overnight, much higher than um, expectations. I think it was 0.6% month on month. Um, and now we've got this big jump in oil prices as well, haven't we? US, uh, US oil back above $90, Brent crude above $92. Um, um, maybe this is going to start to put some pressure um, on the Fed. So you you look at the CPI number that came out in the US this week, it was stronger, as you mentioned, 3.7 versus 3.6, and it was particularly relevant in the transportation sector, um, which is a reflection of higher um, energy prices. And you mentioned oil, uh, that's now at $90 plus and sticking. So that's a, an area of concern. There are others. Most of the other sectors in the economy are coming off this really high level of price pressure which was driven by supply chains and you combine that with less demand as the economy slows somewhat um, those sectors are deflating but the transportation sector and the energy sectors remain fairly well um, uh, sticky in terms of higher prices and that's where core cpi because they, it's hard to strip out some of that and so core cpi is still around 4.3 percent in the us uh, with a target of two to three which means that if that sticks for a while the, the fed might need to, to have another push on rates 
So there's a few things to watch here. Uh, you're right, producer prices are at target, right, around 2%. So I think on the producer side, there's not as much concern. The consumer side, there's still some stick in the pricing. And then with oil prices and energy prices going into a winter in the north, potentially being elevated, that might can contribute to a to a higher inflation print mm. and a potential central central bank reaction. Presumably, if the if the Fed wants to stay on hold, it's got to really look through this spike in energy in, in energy prices, hasn't it? But at the same time, when you do see gasoline prices at the, at the petrol pump going up like this, there's potential sort of knock-on effects because consumers really notice uh, the price of petrol or the price of gasoline in the US. It's a key. It's a key uh, key variable that uh, hits the hit pocket immediately, and so adds to the consumer expectation around inflation. Uh, and one thing you can be certain of, and I think this is probably true for every country, um, when oil prices go up, petrol prices go up much more quickly than when oil prices come down and the prices adjust. So, um, you know, it's clear that there's some. You know, I wouldn't say the word gouging, but there's some elevation in the price because um, uh, producers know that they can pass it through if consumers are expecting it. And that's what happens with, particularly with gasoline prices in the US, is they're elevated beyond where they should be. And then when the price comes off a little bit, they don't come off hard enough. So consumers are expecting an immediate uplift in price. When the oil price goes up, they immediately see it at the impact of the Bowser. And that uh, that adds to the inflation expectations. Now, what about the European Central Bank? Their, their decision is much harder than the Fed's, isn't it? Because they've got a rapidly slowing um, economy there, unlike in the US. But they did raise rates in the end by 25 basis points last night. It must have been one of the most dovish rises we've seen for a long, long time because um, they, they were making clear at the same time that that was going to be it for a while. But um, what, what do you make of what the ECB is doing? Well, the reaction in the euro told you that they came off quite sharply, which suggests the market um, now sees that that might be it for the uh, ECB for the moment. 4%, which is sort of about the, the rate where central banks are uh, sort of holding holding fire a little bit, but you've still got inflation printing at around 5.6%. So it's still too high. Um, Germany's in contraction. I guess that concerns the European Union being the largest economy in the Union, and uh, that's probably driving some of the expectation that the ECB will hold now. Uh, because they see that Germany's in contraction, the others are softening, um, but inflation, unfortunately, still rating, printing much higher than where it is in the US. So at 4%, they might hold now, hoping to see some of that price pressure come off, but they're probably in a bit more awkward position right now to see if they can keep rates uh, from going any higher. And, of course, adding to that, um, we talked about oil prices and energy prices going into a northern winter um, uh, to be factored in as well. So, um, is stagflation a risk in in Europe? I mean, the ECB has lifted its inflation forecast for this year and for next year um, as well. But as you said, the uh, you know the eurozone is sliding into recession. Germany already in uh, recession. Is is that a risk for Europe? Well, I think it's a risk. Dislocation is a risk around, um, and it. I guess what central banks are trying to do is to is to throttle it. Um, and I think I've used that expression before. It's just sort of trying to land a, a jet on an aircraft carrier. You know, it's it's technically difficult um, and uh, prone to, you know, uh, error. And I suspect that right now central banks are just trying to balance the balance the, the attempt to bring down inflation. So they're very aggressive early. Know, of course, that the lag effect will, will impact growth. So now they're trying to hold back a little bit and see what happens, um, hoping they've got it right, hoping they've got the mix right. 
But mm. to your point, yes, they don't know, and we don't know whether they've gone too hard. Um, unfortunately, we'll probably only know that towards the end of this year, whether, in fact, there's more dislocation than what's being uh, priced at the moment. One of the intriguing aspects of this whole cycle is the tightness of labour markets that has continued longer than what we would have expected given the rate, rate increases. Mm. Uh, the markets, what do you make of the market reaction? They really seem to be ignoring at the moment, don't they? Rising bond yields, the rising US dollar, rising um, oil prices, and, and even ignoring the strong economic data that we saw last night, the good retail sales data, the um, uh, and just assuming that the Fed is going to stay there um, on hold and seems to be focusing more on the, on the economic side, that, you know, the economy is looking pretty good. But it, it's a pretty fragile balance, isn't it, between the bulls and the bears here? Yeah, I think if you, if you look at equity markets, I think you, if you strip out some of the, you know, the AI, the growth stocks that have really, you know, gone so well, you know, the Magnificent Seven, I think they some people call that expression, um, um and you, you strip that out, you start to see the real valuation. Um, and it's probably a bit more stressed than it appears at face value. Bond yields have to have an impact at some point because mm-hmm. they're going to feed into earnings. And whilst at 4.3%, maybe you know, the, the market's priced the risk of that. I think the longer they stay up there, the more likely it is going to see some impact on the equity market. So even if even if we get a Goldilocks scenario and the economy sort of you know reaches a soft landing, um, it's hard to see the market kicking along in a broad sense um, in terms of equities from here because it feels like everything's priced in as good as it can get. And a lot of the growth in equity markets has been driven a bit by the sort of, you know, growth stocks coming back into 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 favour. And that yield valuation will have an impact. So if bond yields go to 4.5% and they stay there for a period, it's going to have to impact equities. So I suspect we'll see potentially the risk factor would be that Economy starts to slow, but bond yields stay high, and that's when you might get the reaction in the equity market. Right now, I think the market's fully, almost fully priced for good news. Mm. Well, we got in to, terms got, of that that outcome. We we got a price in China as well, haven't we? We've had that triple R cut uh, last night, freeing up the banks uh, to to lend more money and try and support the economy. Um, we've also got a lot of economic data coming out of China uh, this morning on things like retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investment. Um, but but China also the uh, the news there having a big impact on markets. You get uh, you get really mixed views on this um, in around. You know, we talk to fund managers and we talk to you know the, those investing in in China, and some are particularly bullish, saying it's a huge opportunity because of valuations being so uh, discounted right now. And part of that discount is really the geopolitical risk, uh, which really can't be uh, ignored um, in terms of absolute um, valuations. That, you know, you could argue that China looks a great buy. Uh, and then there are others who are saying that this is, you know, the beginning of a of a Japan type scenario where China deflates and underperforms for you know for for a long period of time. So I, I don't particularly have enough knowledge of what's happening in China to make a judgment call, but it's a it's certainly one economy that we're watching closely because of its significance uh, and um, uh, to the world economy. Um, but it's a bit hard to read how how much this slowdown is going to continue and whether it's into a big deflationary cycle that we saw in Japan right now will remains to be seen. They certainly have enough capacity to inflate the economy or at least to give the economy a push. Uh, and that's one thing that China has in its favour is it, it has that capacity to potentially pump prime economic activity um, as needed. So that's where we'll, we'll be watching closely to see what 
the central bank authorities do to try to push growth. Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and the Shah, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. And providing a view from mainland China will be Shanghai-based independent economist Andy Sher. Have a great weekend. Money Talk.